Let's pray together. Oh God, you make us want to be brave. We'll be honest with you. We don't have it in us. We wimp out. We let you down. But we have Jesus. We watch Him. And we cling to that assurance that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Make us brave. Right now, dear God, make us attentive to your spirit in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I received some news on Monday that breaks my heart. And I want to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I need to show you a photograph. There's an old Chinese proverb that observes a picture is worth 10,000 words. That's certainly true of the photograph you are about to see. It was taken on April 6, 2005. Flashed around the world a single color photograph. One picture worth 10,000 words. Let me put that uh, photograph on the screen for you. April 6, 2005, Wednesday evening, inside St. Peter's in the Vatican at Rome. There you see three presidents of the United States, all three kneeling at the funeral bier of the beloved John Paul II, the Supreme Pontiff of Rome. One of the presidents you will note happens to be our present president, is bowed in prayer. All three presidents are Protestant, making this the first time in history that a U.S. president has attended the funeral of a Roman pope. Only for this first time, three presidents came. Unprecedented. Three presidents of the most powerful nation on earth attending the funeral of a religious leader. So what's going on here? Simply a little bit of government courtesy for a beloved pope? Hardly. Where there was no surviving widow to console or family to comfort. The fact is that the following Friday, these three presidents joined with other political leaders, presidents, and prime ministers, and kings, and queens, along with numerous spiritual leaders, imams, and rabbis, and holy men of other world religions, all joined to pay their final respects to this Roman pontiff. That fact of itself bespeaks of much more than death-time courtesies. This single photograph is a stunning reminder of the ascendancy of a global trilateral alliance that is predicted to peak just before the return of Christ to this earth. Once upon another time, there was a lone prophet who stood up against the most powerful religio-political alliance of his day, a trilateral alliance of pagan worship, apostate religion, and demonic occult. 
One lone prophet stood down that trilateral conspiracy. And because he did, he has become a metaphor for a final generation that must do the same. A movement that bears his name today. It's called the Elijah movement. I want to take a moment with you now and graph. Let's graph together those protagonists in that ancient uh, trilateral alliance. Take out your uh, study guide, please. I want to graph it on a piece of paper. I've got to think about this. I need to conjure. I need to brood over this Bible teaching, and I'd like you to do the same. And so reach into your worship bulletin today, please. There is a three-panel. Whoa, this is a big one. A three-panel study guide. I want you to take it out. If you don't have one, hold your hand up. You've got to have this. You've got to have it. In the balcony, hold your hand up. Down here, those of you watching on television right now, let me give you a website. I'll put it on the screen. There it is, www.pmchurch.tv. This series of teachings is called Eternity's Edge. Click onto that. Today's teaching is entitled The Trilateral Conspiracy. Click onto that. Where it says study guide, say yes. You'll have the identical three-panel study guide before you. And by the way, those of you watching on television and those of you who are here, at the bottom of our web study guide, we will put all the answers. So don't, don't get too bent out of shape because I'm flying through this material, which means that the only way you know that there's something to fill in is if the word is in yellow. You're on your own from right now. If you didn't get it all, you can go to the website. It's there at the top of your study guide. Click on and you'll have the answers at the bottom of that uh, web guide. Now, who were the key players in this ancient trilateral alliance? Hmm? And could it be that they are an ancient early warning system to portend the final conspiracy on earth? I want you, please, to check it out for yourself. All right, let's go. Write it down. We're going to graph it out. Protagonist number one. Write it down, please. Jezebel. Yep, if you missed last week's study, by the way, oh, I hope you get it. And you can get it because it's already sitting there on the web. We've all got iPods now. You want to download it to your MP3 player? You can do that and then go out walking, running, driving, whatever, and you can listen with a little more leisure. Study guide is there as well. So I'm not going to go over her terrible, her, her, her terrible beginning and her terrible ending. We covered that last week. But let me go to the passage once again. I want you to go back to the passage. Let's go to the Old Testament, 1 Kings. Go to the Old Testament, please. 1 Kings chapter 16. You say, I didn't bring a Bible. We've got, you are in luck today. We have a pew Bible. Take the pew Bible in front of you, pull it out, and turn to page 247. All right, 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings 16. I'm going to be in the New International Version. The pew Bible is the New King James. Whatever translation you have is fine with me. Gregory did a great job reading out of the New Living Translation this morning, and I really appreciated that translation. Nice job. But I'll be in the NIV. Okay. 1 Kings 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Verse 31. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that's the founder of his dynasty, but he also married Jezebel, her last... The last part of her name is Baal, Jezebel, actually, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And Ahab began to serve Baal and worship him. Verse 32, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built for his bride. He married the next door neighbor girl. He built her a temple for her religion. All right. Now, verse 32, he, he set up that altar 
for Baal in the temple. Sorry, my page blew shut. And uh, it was for that temple he built in, in Samaria. All right, come on, let's get on. Verse 33. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, licentious goddess liturgical device. He also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. All right, get your pen ready because here we go. Who is this first protagonist? You know what protagonist means? It means key player. Who is this first protagonist? Jezebel. What do we know about her? Write it down. She worshipped Baal, the sun god. And by the way, at the end of every, every one of these little descriptors, there is a biblical reference. You check those out later. I'm not taking the time now. She worshipped Baal, the sun god. Number two, she instituted a false priesthood. Write that in, please. Number three, she tolerated sexual immorality among her priests and worshipers. Number four, she offered false sacrifices. Priests, priests on top of the Mount Carmel, you remember that? The Baal priests are cutting themselves, the Bible says there in chapter 18, with their knives as they often did. False sacrifices. Let's see, this would be number five. She instituted idolatry. Take a look at that text in just a moment. And, and number six, she promoted the worship of the Queen, capital Q, Q Queen of Heaven. I'm going to share with you a text that you didn't know was in the Bible in just a moment. Question, is there a parallel today that embodies the pagan heresies of ancient Jezebel? Think, think, think. All right, protagonist number two. We've got to keep moving. Protagonist number two, write it down. Ahab. Ahab. What do we know about this Israelite king? Well, we know, number one, he was born into and embraced the true religion of God and his forefathers in the beginning. He grew up in a believing home. He grew up in the faith. We know that. Number two, we know that he was bewitched by a deceptive alliance with the pagan queen Jezebel. Number three, we know that he apostatized and turned from the creator God of Israel in order to worship the sun God of Jezebel. And number four, he led his people to also reject their spiritual heritage and accept the pagan worship of Jezebel. He knew better, got sucked into it himself, and then led all his people to follow his apostate leadership. Whoa, I want to look at two texts now. These are the two that I want you to see. You didn't know these verses were in your Bible. I want you to see them. Okay, where is it? Jer uh, Jeremiah, chapter 44, page 542 in your pew Bible. Turn to Jeremiah, that old prophet Jeremiah. Go to chapter 44. Take a look at this. I want to show you something. Jeremiah 44. Let's pick it up in verse 16. The people are saying, hey, God, we're not listening to you anymore. No way. No more. And that's... That's their word that gets us going to the text I need you to read. But we'll begin in verse 16. The people say, we will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, Jeremiah. Verse 17. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her just as we and our fathers, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time, we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm. Now, hold on to your seat here. Verse 18. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and by famine. You know what? We, we have to go back. This nation is under some kind of judgment. We are in trouble. We used to worship the queen of heaven and we're in trouble because we've neglected that worship. We're going back. 
to the queen. I want you to remember those words. I want you to lock those words in your brain because one day you will hear them all over again. We're being judged as a nation. We've got to go back to the queen. It's an amazing, amazing text. I want to share just one more before we continue our little graph here. Go to the book of Ezekiel. I could put this on the screen and just read it to you, but I need you to see this in the Bible. It is actually in your Bible. Ezekiel chapter 8. What page is this? This would be page 561. Ezekiel chapter 8. Take a look at this. Verse 16. Ezekiel is already in exile. He's one of the captives. God gives him a vision of what's going on back at home in church, Ezekiel. I want to show you what's happening in church. Verse 16. And he then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance of the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about 25 men. Now, get, get a load of this. With their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. They are worshiping the sun. They grew up with a faith of true religion. And now they're worshiping the sun. Question. Is there a parallel today that embodies the apostatizing religion of ancient Ahab? Protagonist number three. There was a third protagonist in this ancient trilateral alliance. A third player who was really the power behind the two thrones of the first two protagonists. Who might that be? I want you to go back. I want you to go back. To Revelation. Pastor Esther read it just a moment ago. I want you to go to, easy to find, the Bible's last book. Take a look at the apocalypse. I want you to see this for yourself. Revelation chapter 2. What page is that? That's um, page 824. All right. Revelation chapter 2. Doing a little exercise of your fingers. Today in the Bible, it doesn't hurt to do that now and then, does it? Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. God is speaking. Jesus is speaking. Now, by the way, by the way, He is speaking to a post-Calvary Christian community of faith. Calvary is behind them. They are all dyed-in-the-wool Christians, all right? Now, now, notice what He says to the Christian church. This one happens to be uh, Thyatira. Verse 20. Nevertheless, the words of Christ. If you have a red-letter Bible, these should be in red. Nevertheless, I have this against you, church. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. She thinks she's a spiritual leader. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Verse 21. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her, verse 22, on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her. Look, come on, time out. Hold it, hold it, hold it. This is not talking about sexual Physical sexual adultery, is it? Jezebel doesn't even live anymore. This is way after Jezebel. Something symbolic is going on here. There is a spiritual adultery that's taking place. Somebody's in bed with the wrong wife, spiritually speaking. And whenever you're in bed with the wrong woman, whenever you're in bed with the wrong man, you are committing adultery. That's what he's saying. Now, Verse 23, 
I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am He who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now hold on. One last line. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. There it is. Protagonist number three. Who's the power behind the throne? It is Satan himself. Lord Satan himself. Goes by Baal in the Old Testament. Satan in the New Testament. Doesn't matter the name you give him. He's always the same power. Protagonist number three, write that down, please. The power behind Jezebel's idolatrous reign, it is Satan. Question, is there a parallel power today that embodies the deep and deceptive workings of Satan? Question, is the occult at work today? Are we aware of that occult? Or are we still saying, doesn't affect me, doesn't affect us? Before we identify who the modern players are in this repeat trilateral alliance that is soon to become a global conspiracy. We need to recognize, wait a minute, oh, don't leave yet. There is one more protagonist. Write it down, please. Let us not forget him. Protagonist number four, Elijah. Write it down. Elijah. And what do we know? What do we know about this prophet of God? Uh, I'm sorry, but I've got to get you to go back to 1 Kings 17. You need to see this because I left it out last week. On purpose. Didn't have time for it. But I want you to see what the actual Hebrew says in uh, 1 Kings. Go back to the story of Ahab and Jezebel. 1 Kings chapter 17, where Elijah comes striding on to the stage of that drama. Protagonist number 4. 1 Kings 17, the same verse we read last week. Let me read it again in your hearing. Verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives... Whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, the NIV came to the Hebrew and said, you know what, this Hebrew, nobody's going to understand it. Let's just go ahead and tell them what it really means. The Lord whom I serve. But most of your other translations faithfully keep close to the literal Hebrew. And it should actually read, the Lord before whom I stand. Would you write that in, please? He stood before, before the Lord. Did you see that in that first line? He stood before. Let's put that screen up now. There it is. He stood before the Lord. Which, by the way, is a good place to be found standing, is it not? Come on, let me hear an amen if it is. Come on, guys, please. Do your friends look at you? Do my people look at me? And do they say, you know what? She is somebody. He is somebody who stands before God. I've got to tell you about that word stand. It's in the present tense. That means it's a 24-7 kind of availability to God. Do I stand before God 24-7? Do you, do you have this mental attitude that I am always in the presence of God? I'm going to tell you what I teach my young preachers over in the seminary because it's true about every Christian. When you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are always on call 24-7. 24-7, you're always on call. I know what you're saying. You say, oh, come on, Pastor, that is, that, that's kind of bad news. Are you kidding? That isn't bad news. That's about the best news you can think of. In fact, would you write this down, please? That's the news that says God is 24-7 available to me and I to Him. He is always beside me. He's standing right here, right now. I have nothing to fear, and neither do you. 24-7. Hey, look, 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 think. Could it be that if I live with this 24-7 consciousness that I stand before God, that there would be some places I'd be sitting before less? Maybe sitting a little less before my favorite team. 
Maybe sitting a little less before my favorite TV show. Maybe sitting a little less before my favorite cable news network. If I lived with this 24-7 consciousness. Sorry, Mr. Ahab, King, Sir, Your Highness, my name is Elijah, and I stand before the Lord, so if you have a problem with me, you take it to him. All right? Write that down. Number one, what do we know about Elijah? Number one, he stood before the Lord. Number two, he stood alone before the Lord. He was without question a minority. A very small minority. Because sometimes it seems like you're standing all alone and everybody's against you. And that's why I'm so glad that those singers sang one word. What was the one word they sang? Brave. So long status quo. Brave. Because there are times when you've got to be brave. You're going to stand just as, just as alone as Elijah did. You're going to stand just as alone as Jesus did atop Calvary. But I want you to take courage, my friend, because you are not the first, nor will you be the last. In fact, this is the great news. Would you write this down, please? This is the truth. God plus one equals majority. Always, always, always God plus one. Don't you ever come whimpering to me. I am all alone, and I don't think I can make it. God plus one, you're the majority anyway. Hallelujah. All right, the three points about Elijah. Number one, stood before the Lord. Number two, stood alone before the Lord. And write it down. Number three, stood the lone defender. Write in the word defender. Stood the lone defender of the Creator God of Israel. Not, by the way, not, not that God needs a defender. I mean, have you noticed he's pretty much able to take care of himself these days? But, boy, oh boy, isn't this true? Tell me, isn't this true? Don't you just love it when you find out somebody's sticking up for you. There's a circle where they're all talking about you. And oh boy, are they ticked? They're mad. But somebody stands up and says, you know what? She's a good, she's, she's a good person. I know her. She's my friend. I know that boy. He's my friend. Don't you say that about him. Is it, doesn't, doesn't it just warm the cockles of your heart when somebody sticks up for you? Hallelujah. What do you think it does to the heart of God? How thrilled God must have been. As he listened to Elijah pray, oh, I've got to read, you have to read with me that prayer of Elijah. Because the Baal prophets have spent the whole day cutting up their bodies, not a flicker, not a spark of fire. That, that soaking wet sacrifice, by the time Elijah's through with it, still st- sitting there. But here, here, here comes the prayer. Now, what is this? Verse 36. Catch this. And at the time of sacrifice, that would be late in the afternoon, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Listen to the simple prayer, folks. Beautiful. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And he has no sooner gotten the words of that prayer out of his mouth than there is a kaboom and a nuclear explosion atop Mount Carmel. Oh, mercy. Look at this. Verse 38. And then... And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Hallelujah. I want you to get this in your little black book because you carry one around. Important things to remember. Would you jot this down today? Just jot this down, will you? In a showdown between God and Baal, 
between the God of the universe and the God of the Son, guess who wins? Every time, hands down. So would you write this down? Stick with God. Yeah, write that down in your black book. Stick with God. You're all looking down at the study guide. There's nowhere to write on the study guide. You just write. Everybody said, where did I fill this in? No, you write it in your little black book. Stick with God. There they are, ladies and gentlemen, the four protagonists, three of whom are in a trilateral alliance against the fourth. Fast forward now to this momentous hour of history in which you and I, hold on, you and I get to live. Now, I'm still thanking my mother for giving birth to me. Hallelujah. And the timing that she chose, praise God, you could not have picked a more momentous time for you to be alive on this planet. Thank your mother the next time you see her. And you might also thank your dad, too. <laughs> Here we are. Now, guys, have you figured it out yet? Have you figured it out? Write it down. The same players, the same players are all in place for the final showdown just before the return of Jesus. Thank you, God. Let's, I'm going to run the, by the players real quick. Now, keep your pen moving. Player number one, protagonist one, Jezebel, the pagan queen. Write it down, also known in the Apocalypse as the great prostitute, and I'll give the references there, and Babylon that sits upon the seven hills, which are a symbol of Rome. Write it in. There isn't anybody who will challenge what those seven hills stand for. It's for Rome. Keep writing. Revelation describes this religio-political power as the deceptive blending of Christianity and paganism and the uniting of church and state into one monolithic global force Known as Babylon. Wow. I'm reading a book right now, a fascinating book from my dad's library. Published a century and a half ago. But if you go on the web, you're going to find it republished and republished. It's all over the web. It's written by Alexander Hislop. Wrote it over in London, England. Title of the book, The Two Babylons. Listen to this. It's the most detailed study I have read Revealing how ancient paganism, all the way back to post-Babel Nimrod, has been preserved down through the millennia. Hold on. Transmitting the same gods and goddesses with slight changes or variations in their names. The same priesthood and vestments and even religious symbols from religion to religion until today. We find the essential core of the religion in Nineveh and Babylon alive and well today in modern Rome. I'm quoting Hislop now. I'll put it on the screen for you. The paganism which Rome has baptized is in all its essential elements the very paganism which prevailed in ancient Babylon. The essential character of her system, the grand objects of her worship, her festivals, her doctrine and discipline, her rites and ceremonies, her priesthood and their orders have all been derived from ancient Babylon. And with breathtaking detail, Hislop proves his point. What's our point? Our point is this. The Jezebel of that ancient trilateral alliance is in place today. She simply bears another name. Rome. Protagonist number two. Who's protagonist number two? That would be Ahab, the apostate king. Keep your pen moving now. Also called in the apocalypse, the false prophet or a lamb-like beast. Both symbolic of fallen Protestant Christianity. Write that in. Representing those who, like Ahab long ago, knew better, knew the difference between right from wrong, truth from error, but who through an hypnotic infatuation with Jezebel and her glittering system of worship have abandoned the faith of their fathers and the faith of their mothers and have accepted the domination of a pagan queen. 
It is this Ahab-like power. By the way, with its strongest manifestation here in the United States, make no mistake about it, there's nowhere on earth where it is stronger than right here. It is this Ahab-like power that leads the entire world to follow Jezebel, a.k.a. Babylon, a.k.a. Rome. And I cannot help but bemoan evangelical scholar Mark Knowles' regrettable attempt to justify to Protestant readers what amounts to a return to Babylon and Rome through his latest book, Is the Reformation Over? But my heart was more deeply saddened, nearly broke, and I'm telling you the truth. I promised I'd tell you this. When just this last Monday... I learned about a meeting that took place two weeks ago today. An audience before Pope Benedict XVI and the leaders of the World Alliance of Reformed Churches whose president, Clifton Kirkpatrick, delivered the following address. And I have the entire address to the pontiff of Rome. And I'm not going to show it all to you. Let me give you a line that broke my heart. I'll read it, put it on the screen for you. Your Holiness, we come representing the World Alliance of Reformed Churches, the Global Fellowship of 215 churches. That would be denominations, all right? 215 churches of Reformed, Congregational, Waldensian, and Presbyterian traditions composed of some 75 million Christians from all parts of our world. We are churches shaped by the Protestant Reformation and its values, but also deeply committed to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of which both our, com our communities are a part. Now, here it comes. In talking with the moderator of the Waldensian Church here in Italy, who is part of our delegation, i.e., he's here today. The leader of the Waldensian Church of Italy is right here. In talking with him, I was pleased to learn of positive new ecumenical developments between Protestants and Catholics around honoring the Bible at interconfessional marriages so that we can go ahead and start marrying each other once again. I was glad to learn about new structures of ecumenical cooperation at the grassroots level. Final line of his address. We are eager to be partners with you in this important ministry of Christian unity. End quote. Do you know what broke my heart? Did you see? Look, it is not the prayer for unity. God knows Jesus prayed with all his heart the night before he was executed in John 17 that they may be one, Father, as we are one. It can't be the prayer for Christian unity, but it's the words. Let me put them on the screen. We come representing the Waldensian church here in Italy. That do, you know, do you remember who the Waldensians were? Come on, do you? That intrepid, mountain-cloistered Christian community of men, women, and children who defied the pagan advances of Rome through the Dark Ages and who shed their blood upon the Italian Alps for the sake of defending the Bible as the Word of God and the truth of God? Do you remember the Waldensians? Rome ruthlessly, well-nigh obliterated them from the face of this earth, slaughtering men, women, children, and babies. Before there were Protestants, there were Waldensians. who sealed their faith with their blood. Your Holiness, we come representing the Waldensian Church here in Italy, eager to be partners with you in this important ministry of Christian unity. What has happened, ladies and gentlemen, to the faith of our fathers and mothers? Huh? And if Rome waits long enough...
could it be that there will be no one left, no one left, to stand up to her global dominion and hegemony? Could it be if she just waits long enough? Now you know why I feel so deeply about what we shared last Sabbath. Of all people on earth, we cannot, we must not compromise the heart of God's supreme lordship as creator of heaven and earth. Write this down, would you please? The Seventh-day Sabbath is the only divine memorial on earth to God's seven-day creation. To compromise one is to destroy the other. Come on, just think with me. Do you think, do you think the Waldensians overnight capitulated and returned to Rome? Huh? Do you think so? You kidding? Just a little compromise here one decade, a little compromise here another decade, a little compromise here one century, a little compromise here one century, until finally they are suing for peace. Please, please, can we, can we marry each other again? The Seventh-day Sabbath is the only divine memorial on earth to God's seven-day creation. To compromise one is to destroy the other. Of all people on earth, therefore, we have got to be the most passionate defenders of the Creator and His Sabbath and His Scriptures, and we have to be the most courageous. I want to remind you about something just outside those doors. In fact, I can see it right through the glass. I can see Him. Do you know what's outside our doors? There is a statue. It is this university's namesake. His name, John Nevins Andrews. You didn't know this. But his most significant scholarly work that he ever wrote was a masterful apologetic of the Seventh-day Sabbath entitled History of the Sabbath. I've got it. I've read most of it. Of all people on earth, we who are His intellectual descendants surely must be the most passionate and articulate defenders of our Creator and His Sabbath. What do you say? Come on, what do you say? But a demonic sun god, once called Baal, has counterfeited that sacred day and transferred... Its significance to the day of the sun or Sunday. Baal. And Babylon today, a front for that sun God, urges the allegiance and alliance that betrays the Creator and eventually will lead the entire world astray. Will there be no one left to stand up to Ahab and Jezebel? Where in the world is Elijah today? Where is the Elijah movement to stand down the trilateral conspiracy? By the way, may I remind you that this very same conspiracy crucified our Lord Jesus Himself. Pagan Rome, apostate religion, demonic occult. And they killed the King of Kings. Never Never doubt the unhidden agenda of this trilateral alliance. Never doubt it.
Never. You say, what alliance are you talking about? Well, let me put it to you about as plain as we can. Let me put some words on the screen for you, written over a century ago. You have them in your study guide. When Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, when under the influence of this threefold union, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government and shall make provision for the propagation of falsehoods and delusions, then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near, end quote. How near are we to the end? How near are we to the end? What you're seeing is the largest funeral attendance in history, witnessed by more human beings probably than any other single event in time. And the much-loved pontiff surely earned the affection and attention of the world he circumnavigated during his reign. But that's just it. It was a reign. No king was ever laid to rest with more pageantry and honor. And the secular media, oh my, never known for sympathetic twinges toward Christianity, were awash with genuflected adoration for him, for Rome, and for her surrogates. And the whole world, the whole world was astonished and followed him. The whole world. How near are we? Close enough that it's time for the Elijah movement to stand up and speak out. One more quotation. I find great comfort in this from great controversy. Let me show you where I find the comfort in this. Read with me. The Holy Spirit still controls to some extent the laws of the land. Were it not for these laws, the condition of the world would be much worse than it is now. God also has His agents, hallelujah, among the leading men of the nation. The enemy moves to propose measures that would greatly impede the work of God. But here it comes. But statesmen who fear the Lord are influenced by holy angels to oppose such propositions with unanswerable arguments. Thus, a few men will hold in check a powerful current of evil. End quote. Hallelujah. There is no telling what another natural disaster in this nation will do to our government and our citizens. What is clear is that we must act now to reach those politicians we just read about, those, those, those statesmen, those judges who are being directed by holy angels to hold back the forces of this trilateral alliance. It can be stalled a little longer. We should seek legislative intervention to buy time. Listen to me carefully. We should not be praying for the end to come. We should be pleading with God, hold the end back. We still have a world to reach. I don't want to hear about Adventists on their knees begging to be taken to heaven. That is the most selfish prayer you can pray because it means it comes at the expense of six billion people, many of whom, the most of whom are not ready for Jesus to come. We should be pleading, don't come yet. Don't come yet. We, We still have work to do. Christ's urgent salvation appeal still must go out. 
Oh, my dear friends, it is time for the Elijah movement to stand up and stand down this trilateral alliance. The time has come. It is the right time.